Anyways, I'd like to welcome you to this Sunday. Thanks for coming. Uh, we're continuing our series in Galatians. We're going through Galatians now, chapter 1, 6 through 9. We're doing some verses, like, it's going to be a slow grind throughout Galatians. I hope, actually, grind's a bad word. It's going to be a slow celebration throughout Galatians. <laughs> and so I hope that you enjoy it. Um, if you weren't here last week, we looked at the context of why this letter was being written. And, like, the church of Galatia, which were many, just not one church, but all the churches, they were starting to believe a gospel that wasn't true. Starting to believe something that wasn't uh, actual truth. Not what Paul had taught them. So right at the beginning, Paul calls them back to remember that it wasn't their doing to be saved, us, but God's grace. And so that's where we left off last week. Um, I want to reiterate Willow One Prayer before I begin. Yes, my address was announced publicly. No, I didn't give consent. Just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, there is consent. If you're willing, wanting to come, you can take out your pens right now. You can write this address down again if it was too quick. It's 10951 Darlene Road. That's 10951 Darlene Road. This is now on camera, and so this is awesome. So everybody who is watching this at home, come out to Willow One Prayer September 30th at my house. If you fork my yard, if you don't know what that is, that's when you like buy a bunch of plastic forks and put them in someone's yard. You've never done that? Yeah, me either. <laughs> Anyways, let's continue on. Um, just get, but come to our house. We'd love to have you uh, join us for Willow One Prayer. That is September 30th. So let's pray before we continue on. Father, we thank you for your word and that it is alive. And Lord, we want to we want to hear it, Lord, with open hearts and open minds to what you have to say to us. Lord, we thank you that uh, it is living. Lord, that it's not a dead word that we read. Lord, you make it alive. And so we pray that as we come into your presence today, Lord, as we are here and Lord, as we're prepared to hear, we just, we just want to, we want to leave changed, transformed. Lord, we want to be renewed by you, Lord. And we want to take what has been said and just apply it to our lives. And so we thank you that we can do this, Lord, that we live in a country we can do this. And I pray that our ears and our hearts will be open. In your name we pray. Amen. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. And it reads, I have PowerPoint here for those who don't have their Bible. Carlos, if I run through the scripture, if you can click through, that would be great. It says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Culturally, we are good at we have this ability, you're not good at, but we have this tendency to change sometimes what can be said. Uh, changing it to our bent, changing it to our like, uh, making it work for us. Like, like my kids, right? I tell them go sit on their bed and they sit on their bed, but they've made some kind of contraption where they can grab something on the other side of the room. And I'm like, I'm like so well, I told you to sit on your bed. Like, yeah, I, I was sitting on my bed. And so, like, kids, that we, like, we all have this ability to change, maybe to, to bend something to our liking, to our, you think my kids are crazy, but who hasn't done that? Seriously, we've all been there where we're like, you didn't say this, though. 
But did you know this? There's some stories that got me thinking about history, about the U.S. Uh, and that's not just because I'm American. That's just because there are just some stories that run through my mind as I was thinking about this. Did you know that 52 of the 55 signers of the Declaration of Independence were orthodox, deeply committed Christians? The other three all believed in the Bible as the divine truth, the God of Scripture, and his personal intervention. It is the same Congress that formed the American Bible Society. Immediately after the Declaration of Independence, the Continental Congress voted to purchase and import 20,000 copies of Scripture for the people of this nation, of, of the states. Here's some more stories. Patrick Henry, who is called the firebrand of the American Revolution, is still remembered for his words. I'm not sure if you've heard these, but give me liberty or give me death. But in current textbooks, the context of these words is omitted because this is what it actually he said. An appeal to arms and the God of hosts is all that is left for us. But we shall not fight our battle alone. There is a just God that presides over the destinies of nations. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. If life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery, forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Consider like these words from Thomas Jefferson, president, where in front of his well-worn Bible, he said this, I'm a real Christian, that is to say a disciplined a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus, I have little doubt that our whole country will soon be rallied to the unity of our Creator. He was also the chairman of the American Bible Society, which he considered his highest and most important role, above being the president. Calvin Coolidge, 30th president, reaffirmed this truth when he wrote, the foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. Now this one blows my mind. Of the first 100 universities found in America, 106 were distinctly Christian, including the first, Harvard University, chartered in 1636. And get this, this blows my mind. This was their number one point? It's going to happen, I promise. Yes. <laughs> uh, we, you can't read it all, but this is what it says. In the original Harvard Student Handbook, rule number one, the first rule, was that students seeking entrance must know Latin and Greek, crazy, so that they could study the scripture. First rule to get into Harvard. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God in Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17, 3, and therefore to lay Jesus Christ as the only foundation for our children to follow the moral principles of the Ten Commandments. The first rule in the student handbook in Harvard University, which is now the most liberal university in the world. It's crazy. This blew my mind. We see that we are a society that can move from what we were taught and to add to it to make it comfortable for us. We can see that something can be built, right? This, like what was being built in the States, and I'm sure here was like a, a moral, a set of morals of doctrines of Christ, but it, it changed. And just as you might be astonished by these stories, 
Paul was astonished that the Galatians, so soon after hearing the gospel, were turning to a different gospel. And it says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. We think, why is Paul doing this? He seems so mean writing this letter to the Galatians, saying you don't need to, to fall. You're following a false doctrine. You're not following the right thing. You're, you're following something that wasn't taught to you. You're not following the salvation comes by grace. But he, like these stories we see that I just read, it can change quickly. He used the word astonished. He was dumbfounded and shocked. Couldn't believe what he was hearing about the stories that, he'd, that he trusted, that they had trusted Christ. Their focus had changed. Their bearings were off now, the Galatians. The thing to notice here is Paul skips all the unusual affirmation and gospel celebration he normally puts in the epistles. And he gets right to business. He comes right down to it. Like every speaker has a pattern. I get up here, for example, I tell a story, and I tell what's going on in the church. I try to affirm you about something, and then I, you know, get, open my Bible, and I give you just an amazing word for 30 minutes. And everybody's not laughing. Everyone's like, yeah, you do. <laughs> but what if I got up here one weekend, lights were off, and all of a sudden the lights turned on, and I'm like this. Yeah, we got something to talk about. <laughs> you wouldn't know something was wrong. And so this is what's happening. Paul is like shocked that they were deserted so quickly. The one who called them to live in the grace of Christ and are turning now to a different gospel. They're shocked. He's shocked. The Galatians were turning away from a person as they turned to a false idea. To turn away from the true gospel is to turn away from the person of Jesus Christ. You're not turning away from like an organization, a nameless face. You're turning away from a real, real relationship with someone. When Paul says you're leaving the one, he is making a point that this is very much a relationship that you are leaving. It's not an idea. It's a relationship. He said, you so quickly deserting the one. Not the idea, not the plan, but the one who called you. And so it's sometimes, though, what makes it so easy to live, leave is when it's not personal. When it becomes a works-based relationship, it loses that personal aspect to it. When it becomes like, oh, I just got to do this, this, and this, we begin to lose those personal aspects of the relationship. When it is about, I do this for you, and that for you, and the only thing you do for, and what I, for me is, what do I get in return? Nothing. Then it makes it easy to leave. So Paul continues now in verse 7. He says, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So Paul calls what the Judaizers are teaching, that in addition to faith in Christ, you have to be circumcised and keep parts of the law. He calls that a different gospel, a perverted gospel, a contrary gospel, whatever it says in your version. The Greek word here used to pervert is called metesrepho. Meaning to, I know you're impressed, meaning to turn around, it occurs when one thing is being turned into its polar opposite. For instance, the other two uses of the term in the New Testament are in Acts 
2.20, the sun will be turned to darkness, something completely different. And James 4.9, let your laughter be turned to mourning, something completely different. It can mean reversal, changes. What the Judaizers were actually re were doing was they were reversing the flow of the gospel. They were changing the tide of it. They were making it look something different than what it was supposed to be. Really, an anti-gospel. So to pervert the gospel is to disturb something so much that you can't even make out what it is anymore. You've, you've messed with it so much you just can't even tell what it is. Because pervert, that's a strong word to use for what's happening. But this is a strong situation. When something is so far gone that there's no distinguishable or recognizable attribute anymore, it's what he's saying. It's like, you just can't even recognize it anymore. You've perverted it so much. It doesn't even look like what I was teaching you. It's so different. When works come first, there is no second. When Christ comes first, in turn, we are more than willing to do works. It is an outpouring of worship. We are more willing to do the things he's called us to do. James talks about works. Faith without works is dead. Yes. But it means faith isn't real if it doesn't result in good works. When we put our works equal to faith, we're saying we got to do these things. We have to you know, obey all these laws. You got to be I mean, circumcision is not part of our daily talk about works. But when this time it was, when they make it equal with faith, then we pervert the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Like, oh, wow, we're going back. Basic 101. It's always good to hear this. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Gospel means this, simply good news. And we're like, oh, I know this. But this is always good to hear. I always want this to be in my forefront. I always want to remember this. Good news is this. Jesus came to be the fulfillment of the law we could never hope to be. Jesus died in our place. The real gospel is that in Christ, God did for us, what we were utterly incapable of doing. For ourselves, he did it all by himself, and all we can do is receive it by faith. Paul encapsulate this in that we were helpless, so he saved us in two primary ways. We were first, we were condemned. So Jesus, he lived the perfect life. We were supposed to live and then died the death. We were condemned to die in our place. He did it for us. It is as simple as this. Imagine taking a final exam that counts for your whole grade. You study it at all. You, study, you didn't study at all for it. Didn't study for this test at all. You're like, yeah, I don't need to do it. You're like, that, that's my whole high school life. And so for me, I was not a studier. But instead, these pe instead of studying for the test, they're partying. And so this person fails. You fail. Sitting beside you is the perfect student who aces the exam. And after the exam, you're like, I should have cheated. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but when it comes time to turn in the grades, he takes your failing exam and gives you his perfect one. In addition to that, we were dead, completely dead. So we were also condemned, but we were dead. Jesus infused new life into us through his resurrection. 
The gospel is not we were spiritually weak and needed a little bit to help strengthen us. Like, oh, I have a little bit of strength. I need now Jesus to make me Superman. Or that we were actually spiritually overweight and we had to shed off a few pounds of evil, you know, to get into, you know, Jesus mode. I don't know. But we were to become pleasing to God. The gospel is that we were spiritually dead. We were no pulse. It's like, I heard somebody say this. It's like you were drowning and he came and he threw you, threw you a life preserver. But actually the truth is, it's like, we were dead in the water. And he came and he saved us, brought us back to life. This is the true gospel. It teaches us that God saves you and blesses you as a free gift of unmerited grace. And in response to that, we do good works. We do things that are like Christ. The things that he did as he walked the earth. The perverted gospel reverses that, saying that we do some good works, and then God saves and blesses us in response to that, because I've done these good things. Now, most of us today are not hung up on circumcision or aspects of the Jewish law. It's not the things that we always follow. But let me show you how sometimes today we believe a perverted gospel, a gospel that maybe isn't true. We just substitute different things in for circumcision. Some of you are like, what's circumcision? Wow, look at the time. <laughs> it's time to, I'm not going to talk. No, I was kidding. Ask your parents if you don't know what circumcision is. Anyways, here's what the gospel isn't. Here's what we do sometimes instead of saying the, the law of the Jews. What the gospel isn't. Sometimes we do it whenever we make something else besides faith in Christ necessary for salvation. For example, maybe some have accepted Christ. You're like, I have to accept Christ and I have to, only way it's really true is I then take communion and I need to belong to a church. I need to confess and I need to be baptized. Then I'm really saved. I'm really, really saved if once I do all those things. Listen, communion, yes, is a part of what we're called to do. It's a practice that we do. Church, it's an amazing thing. It's what we're called to do as a believer. Be a confession, you know, confessing, Christ, confessing your sins to Christ. Yeah, it's something we call repentance. You know, we continue to need to come to him and just say, hey, this is what's happened. And yes, he calls us to be baptized. But we don't need to do all those things in order to have salvation. We do those things because Christ calls us to do those things as believers. There is no and in the gospel you know, if faith, and then you do this, then you're saved. It's faith plus nothing. You're, you know Christ. You're saved. And when you confess him, when you say, yes, I realize what he's done on the cross, then I know I'm saved. Or when we assume that God's acceptance of us is based on how we've been leaving. Like, we start worship today, and you've had a good week, and so you're like, you know what? I'm acceptable to him. I can worship him. I can. But the reality is, we, he's called us all just to come worship. All to come worship to him. No matter the good week or bad week, he calls us to come and, and to worship him. He doesn't look down on you and like, oh yeah, I can't believe you are worshiping me. You had a terrible week. Listen, God looks at you good week or bad week and finds you acceptable. Finds you acceptable. 
through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. He looks at you, no matter what has happened this week, and he's still, I love you. Just like that song that Warren sang, the one for offering, fully known, scary thing, knowing everything that we've done, said, or maybe even thought, but still fully loved. He loves you. You know him, he, he loves you. Some, second thing what we do, some more progressive Christians assume that it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you are a sincere, loving, and good person. That sounds so inclusive. It's really just another way of saying that what you do determines whether or not God accepts you because there is no standard you have to reach, even if it's a loose one. If all good people can know God, then Jesus' death was, unnecess was not necessary. It was unnecessary. And then all means we need is virtue. It's exclusive only to good can come in. I've been doing good things. So you still got to be a good person. And no one assumes everyone makes it, right? We assume murderers, child molesters, rapists, racists, bigots, and Hitler won't make it. The gospel is not that God saves all good people. There are only those who have sinned. And that's all of us. And they, we needed rescue for, from Jesus Christ. Or for, for, yeah, of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we do it when we try to grow ourselves spiritually through self-effort. In chapter 3, Paul is going to say that any growth in the Christian life is the fruit of the Spirit in you. And the power of the Spirit is released by faith in Christ, not by resolution of self-discipline. One time, my mom wanted me to, like, pick weeds. And I was like, that seems like a whole lot of work. And I had to bend down on my knees. What if I just spray them with Roundup? And so, not being well-versed in Roundup, I grabbed as much Roundup as I could. And I was like, I want to make sure these things are dead for my mom. And so I'm going to kill these weeds. And so I went and go and I doused it all, doused everything. Little did I know that Roundup kills more than weeds. And so flowers were dying. I cleared the weeds. They were gone. But man, it was pretty brown out there. And so she's like, you got to fix this. And I was like, I don't know how to fix this. So what if the way I went to go fix it was if I went to the store and I grabbed some flowers and I chopped some roses off, right? Now these roses are dead and I went and go to like stapled these roses to these dead bushes that are already dead. But you can look from a distance. Oh, wow, you can see that those are alive. But really, they're dead. Sometimes we do that. Like, we try, we need Christ. Sometimes we try to do on our own works. But like we're, we're, without Christ, we're dead. And so then we try to do things in order to be close to Christ. And so it's like we're taking our, our deeds, which don't mean much, because we don't have Christ, and we're attaching them to something that's dead already. Christ brings us life. So when we are trying to do it on our own, when we're trying to do it without grace, it's like that. Putting something that's dead to something that's already dead. For many of you, for some of us, for me, it's exhausting. Trying to just continue to do works to prove myself, to prove myself, to prove myself. I realize this, 
that I believe a false gospel when I think I can produce spiritual change in others. A lot of times when I'm thinking about succeeding in preaching and trying to you know, do such a great job, I lean most on the strength of my maybe awesome personality and my good looks and my intelligence and my ability to persuade. Everyone's like, you're so funny because none of that's true. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I, I'm not beating up on myself. I'm trying to be funny. It doesn't work all the time. And so when I think about my kids or when, if they'll turn out right, I assume it's because of the strength of my personality or because I master all the right parenting techniques. I should write books. I'm a parenting extraordinaire. But that's foolish. He would say, Paul would say that's foolish. Only the Spirit can produce eternal life in my kids. And the Spirit is not released into them because of my personality or my abilities, but through faith in the gospel. And that's what I bring to them. You've brought, and I'm trying to think it's all about me, all I'm doing. I'm like, it's, it's a false gospel. I can't do it for my kids. I need to present them Christ, and I trust that the Spirit is working within them. I need to teach them, yes, and trust that the Spirit is working within them. Basically, anytime we focus on something besides God's power being released through faith in Christ's finished work, we are believing a version of the false gospel. That is where it all comes, through the power of Christ, through the power of the cross. That's where everything comes from. We completely need him. I completely need him in the parenting of my children. I completely need him when I'm up here on a Sunday preaching. I can definitely not do this on my own. I need Christ. It's not by my works. I'm trusting in him to recant stories that can connect with you. I'm trusting in him that he's leading me to scripture that's going to empower you guys. I cannot do this on my own. We hear this and we're like, well, we just live this free life then? Just accept Christ and woo, whatever. No, Paul was not against the law. He says it has its place. What he was against was elevating the law to a place where you assume it makes you more right with God or is the secret to an experienced power in the Christian life. This is really key. This is something I want us all to hear, all to grab a hold of, because this is true. This is really, really, it could transform. And this is sometimes where I find ourselves. We're trying to like, what can we do with the next thing that would bring people in? Often we commit the error of the Galatians, not by believing bad things, but by taking a good thing and making it the central thing. For example, growing up, sometimes when I go to church, there's a tendency to emphasize conformity to a set of rules as the mark of a real Christian. Real Christians do this. They don't do that. They talk this way. They don't go to movies. They don't drink or chew or go with girls who do. They don't have premarital sex because that might lead to dancing. Boys have short hair and girls wear dresses. Those are funny things that were said back in the past. Right? There's nothing wrong with rules. We all have them. There's unspoken rules. They're good. The problem with rules is when they become centered to Christianity. The thing we focus on. If we did them, God would accept us and we would be more spiritual. So sometimes I'd, I'd leave church thinking about what I needed to do to make myself more acceptable to God. What do I need to do to be more acceptable in his eyes? Like, obviously I'm not good enough. I, I need to do more things. Rather than trusting in what God had done for me and promised what he was going to do in me from now on. 
Sometimes we, we can emphasize studying and learning the doctrine, having the correct doctrine. That's our sole focus. And I love doctrine. I love hearing about all the doctrines and going through them. But this can lead to us measuring how close we know God by how much theology we know. Education does not equal transformation. Transformation does not come from a mind stuffed full of knowledge, but from simple childlike faith in the gospel. Childlike faith that he has come for us on the cross, and it is by that power that we know him and that we are good in his sight. Sometimes we focus on practical tips of living. Sermons are all about how to do this or that, and that's good. We need these things to help us to grow in our walk with Christ. I love relevance and, and practicality, but the problem is you leave thinking of like a how-to list, what you're supposed to do, rather than looking to what God has done for you for the power to change. That's where our power comes from. The, this is the power of the cross. The power in Christian, Christianity is not a helpful to-do list from Pastor Jeremy but in faith in what Christ has done for you. Sometimes we put a, maybe put an emphasis on a dimension of social justice. Real Christians are for the poor or racial reconciliation or whatever, and that's great. That's awesome. These are things, like I said, are very valuable but not the center. And it's an essential part of being a disciple. But the power in Christianity does not come from a new social agenda. It comes from simple faith in what God has done. Faith in Him. By the power in Christianity comes from Him. From Christ. From the gospel. Don't ever mix up the implications of the gospel with the gospel itself. The gospel is not about what you are to do, but about what Jesus has done. And that there's the, where the power, He has the power to change the rest. He has the power to do it all. We want to see social agendas change. It comes from the power of Christ, the power of the cross. Jesus' last words on the cross were not, God, it started, now you go finish it up. His last words were, it is finished. It is finished. We need to live knowing that it is finished. And believing that it is finished credits you with the righteousness of Christ and releases Jesus' resurrection power within you. That's it, nothing more. Believing in him saves you. Paul is serious about the true gospel. That He says this in verse 8 and 9. As we can begin to close. But even if we are, we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Said it twice. But it's remarkable that he said we. You see that where he said we? Paul includes himself. We. Saying, even me. I am a human authority. He's saying that he must be rejected. He's saying to the nation, I must be rejected. If I ever say, you know, I've changed my mind about what the gospel is. As he tells us, the gospel did not come to him. He said back in those first five verses. It didn't come to him through a process of reasoning and reflection. It was received, not arrived at. So he is not free to alter it through reasoning and reflection. Paul's saying, if I'm making it sound different, then you can abandon me too. We read this and think, are there angels out there? 
preaching a false gospel. Paul's really, same thing when he says we, he's really pounding it home. He's saying, even if an angel comes and says something different, must be condemned. He's saying, what I said to you is so true. Don't listen. Don't go. Don't go to what maybe you hear that's different from what I told you when we first started this church. Listen to the story. Listen to the message I told you at the beginning. When we pervert the gospel, we see three things happen. We see that we are deserting the one who called us. Gospel theology, to abandon gospel theology is to abandon Christ personally. We pervert it. We abandon it. The second thing we do, the second thing we see when we pervert the gospel is it's a different gospel. It's no, a different gospel is no gospel at all. This means that the gospel message by its very nature cannot be changed even slightly without it being lost. We must keep it true to what it is. And when we pervert the gospel, we see this happen too. You condemn people by pointing them to another gospel that has no power to save. And I don't want to do that. There is no other gospel. Like giving someone dying of thirst, when we give them something separate from the gospel, when someone's dying and they're thirsty and we're like, oh, let me give you something to drink, and we give them hydrochloric acid, it kills them. That's like what we do when we give them a gospel that isn't true. We want to give them water, living water. The last thing is this. Paul is all calling us to fight for the true gospel. And I want to end with this story. Uh, Martin Luther, I mentioned him last week and how he really feels about Galatians. He felt so strongly about it that he would love to marry it. And he said this book is so important because some of you are like, well, marrying the gospel, like a book? That's weird. I know. But it's, this is how important it was to him. Because he says, it's talking about what the gospel isn't. And so, I was talking yesterday with Chris and he, I was like, sometimes we need to know what things aren't in order to know what something really is. So we don't forget what we know. And so Martin Luther, he was this German university student studying law. He was walking home, and it was a really bad storm, and lightning was all around, and he got really scared. And so he thought he was going to die, and he cried out in terror to St. Anne, his family's patron saint, and told her that if she would spare his life, he would become a monk. And so he survived, and he enrolled in a monastery. There he began to really be obsessed about what was going to happen to him when he died. He's really worried. What's going to happen to me when I die? And experienced something he would later call anfectung. That's a fun word. You could say it when you're driving home. Anfectung. Anfectung. Which best translates as extremely anxious, extreme anxiety, maybe even depression. And it came from thinking he was rejected by God. He desperately wanted to know he was right with God. He had just desperately wanted to know he was right with God and he wouldn't go to hell. So he began to do everything he could to try to gain assurance of salvation. I'm going to do whatever I can. For example, he would fast for days and sleep on the floor and spend hours in confession trying to remember all of his sins. Because in order for a sin to be forgiven... It had to be confessed. He had to remember it. So he had to remember what he had done and then confess it to Jesus. And he wanted to remember everyone. 
he would beat himself with a whip as a way of trying to show God that he was sorry. I'm so sorry. And the church taught all these things as necessary to help make you right with God. But Luther wondered, how could he know all that he had done, all of his sins, right? Being fully known, but fully loved. He said that trying to remember every sin in confession was like trying to mop up the floor with a faucet continually running. Impossible. I was called Warren in the team up as I finish up this story. Then Luther, he was challenged to read the Bible, to teach it, not read it, to teach the Bible. Like, you know, Luther, maybe teach the Bible. Teach it. And so as he was reading it, he got stuck on Romans. And the phrase, righteousness of God. He hated that phrase. But it dwelled on it. And then he finally understood righteousness of God. He finally understood it. After all that dwelling, after all that thinking about it. He said that Paul speaks, what Paul speaks of, this righteousness of God, is not a standard we have to live up to. We have to live up to this righteousness. But his, the righteousness that God gives us is a free gift in Christ when we receive him. Therefore, it wasn't about Luther confessing enough or feeling sorry enough or beating himself up enough. Jesus literally had done enough. He had done enough. Jesus had lived the life. He had done everything in our place. Morton, you can play softly as I wrap this. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering. Here he developed the phrase, solified or faith alone. Christ did it all. Simply putting faith in that it was, it is what saved us. At this time, Pope Leo wanted to finish a construction part project he had begun on St. Peter's Basilia. But he was out of money, so he started selling indulgences to raise money. Indulgences were basically merit tokens you could buy from the church that would earn you extra credit for heaven. Crazy, right? In addition to that, the Pope taught you that you could also buy indulgences for the dead. The church at this time believed in purgatory which was a place in between heaven and hell where believers can pay off the remaining balance of their sins. You see, no believer, the church taught, was good enough to go straight to heaven. That's impossible. No, you're not good enough to do that. Except for maybe a few saints, maybe those good ones. Now, you're not so bad, you go to hell, so you get to go to this holding area between heaven and hell, where you are punished for your sins for a few hundred years, and they are purged out of you, hence purgatory. Well, they said, you could be released, or you could help one of your relatives be released from purgatory early if you bought an indulgence for them. So for example, if you were worried about mama because of all of her drinking and cussing, it made you worried that she was stuck in purgatory, you can buy an indulgence for her. These preachers would say this, don't you care about your mama? They had all these little catchy poems too. They would say this, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. This infuriated Luther, especially after reading Romans. He thought to himself, 
Isn't the righteousness of God enough? And why would we have to go to purgatory to pay for our sins? Didn't he pay it all? Were Christ's sufferings not complete? Doesn't scripture say that he put away sin once and for all forever through the sacrifice on him alone? Am I reading the same thing? So he listed out these and a bunch of other grievances in a document we now refer to as the 95 Theses and he nailed them to a door. And this was the beginning of the Reformation. Built on the idea that salvation came through faith alone in Christ, began to spread like wildfire throughout all of Europe. As more and more preachers began to translate the Bible into their common language, they began to preach and preach this word more and more. Luther fought for the gospel. Paul fought for the gospel. Well, we fight for the gospel, the truth of what the cross has done for us. This is a different way to end. But I invite you to be seated. And of course, I would love to pray for you. If you had that week, maybe you feel like I just continue. I just need to prove God that I am good enough or I've done these things and I need to, I'm just feeling weighted. I'll pray for you. That's not what he does. That's not, that's not the cross. But as Warren closes, just reflect. How do I view the gospel? Like, what am I doing? Am I, am I living knowing that I'm fully bought by him? Or I'm trying to still prove myself to him? Do I think it's my merit, my skills that invites people in? I know that I have a part in it, but I know it's really the power of Christ that does anything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it's not by us. Lord, the only thing we contributed to the gospel is that we did all the sinning and you did all the saving. Lord, we don't want to add to it. We want to live in the power of it. And from the power of knowing that you have saved us or that you have bought us or that we were condemned, we were dead, but now we are alive in you, that when we come to this place and you're up in heaven looking down on us, all you see is that we are loved. You don't go, you had a bad week, you had a good week, I love you more, I love you less. That's not you. Or we're all working through things. We're all working through lenses that help, that maybe pervert what we view the gospel as. Lord, we want to break those lenses down. We want to see them through your eyes with the gospel truly is, Lord to remember back at the beginning when we first accepted you. Yeah, he paid it all. You paid it all. So we thank you. That is nothing we can do. It's all that you can do.